had always been good at translating concepts and building models and ideas, and I thought, this is my superpower. We moved to solutions probably a little bit too early. The place of discomfort is okay. And so if we talk about social intelligence, emotional intelligence, I believe there's a third intelligence that is absolutely critical for every person to be able to perform at their best, and I call it attentional intelligence. Welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. My name is Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith. And this week, our special guest is Linda Ray. Linda is the founder and CEO of NeuroCapability and the co-founder of the Institute of Organizational Neuroscience. What a wonderful guest. She's one of the few people telling the world about the power of neuroscience. If, the, if it sounds like a scary concept, she debunks it. She gives us practical tips and then evidence of how it can do everything from improve your skills as a leader to change the relationship with your kids. Uh, personally, I'm going to get uh, ahead of the game on intentional intelligence, a new concept that she introduced. How about you, Paul? Yeah, look, uh, so many new concepts, and I keep saying this every time that we learn so much, and I'm starting to think that will there ever become a time that we won't have a guest, that we won't learn something about creativity? But yes, the intentional intelligence was incredibly insightful. Uh, the other one that got me is her idea about speaking in draft and thinking in draft. And to find out what that means, listen to the episode. So let's get Linda on the show. Let's get her in. Linda Ray, a huge welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's lovely to be here with you. Yes, welcome, Linda. Uh, I'm actually the founder of um, NeuroCapability and a co-founder of the Institute of Organisational Neuroscience. Uh, Linda, help me. I can barely pronounce neuroscience. Do you want to tell us what it is? It sounds scary. It sounds like some strange animal to me. Tell us, what is neuroscience? (laughs) (laughs) I guess when you think about neuroscience, as you say, some people go, oh, you know, that sounds really scary. But really what we're trying to do is understand that it is our brain that drives behaviour. And I guess the field of neuroscience, in particular uh, social cognitive neuroscience, has helped us to understand that better and that it's, you know, the most important organ in our body. And yet for 40 years I carried it around in my head and didn't pay it any attention and didn't understand how it worked. And so for the last uh, 17 years, I've been paying more attention to it and understanding that the what we're learning about the brain, and we're learning more and more, there's still so much we don't know, but the, the more we understand our brain, the more we can be in the driver's seat of our brain as opposed to you know, the backseat or the, or the boot <laughs> or the trunk, as they would say in the States. What led you into this field? There can't be ma- – oh, actually, we, we, Paul and I have been talking to a number of neuroscientists, so, so I was about to say there can't be many people in this field, but what led you personally into this strange-sounding area of understanding? Yeah, well, it was interesting because when I finished school, I thought, I'm done with science, I'm never going to look at that again. And uh, I was – my first career was in social work, so I've always been interested in in people and how people operate. And I stumbled across neuroscience by complete accident. It was uh, a person I was working with who said to me, I think you should read this book and you should start looking at neuroscience. And I thought, oh, gosh, okay. And I did it to humour him. 
And at the time I was doing leadership development, coaching, organisational change, and I went, oh, my goodness, this is the missing piece of the puzzle for me. And I dove headfirst into it. I read everything I could lay my hands on. I did postgraduate studies, went to a ton of conferences, and I, I kind of tentatively started sharing it with other people and they became as excited as I was and I thought, okay, I need to focus my entire attention on this because what I noticed is I would, I would go to conferences and I would hear neuroscientists speak and I couldn't write down my thoughts fast enough. I was making all these connections. And then these two people beside me would say, well, that's all very interesting, but what does it mean? And I'd think, oh, my goodness, they're not making the connections. And so it, it dawned upon me I'd always been good at translating concepts and building models and ideas, and I thought, this is my superpower and this is what I need to focus attention on. So so that's what I've been doing for all of those years is trying to make the science um, understandable but, more importantly, practical. So, you know, great that we're learning about the brain, but what does that mean for how we work with people, how we lead people, how we facilitate change, how we create the conditions for innovation and creativity to uh, flourish. Mm. So I, I wanted to come, thank you for um, bringing in creativity and innovation there because <laughs> that's our probably primary focus and we mm. call it neuro, neuro creativity. But before I ask you that question, what was the first book that was recommended to you? Um, it was a book called Quiet Leadership by David Rock all those years ago. And, uh, I mean, I think even since that time that book was written, we've learned more and we've debunked some myths about our understanding of the brain. You know, a lot of people still talk about the triune brain, but we know that um, that's been debunked by neuroscientists for years. <laughs> the brain is a much more connected organ than that, that model kind of um, suggests to people. Mm. So you, you, you mentioned the idea of making it practical, debunking it and so on. Where would your start point be if you're trying to spread the word about the benefits of understanding neuroscience to, to everyday people, perhaps in the workplace? Is there a, where do you start um, to debunk it? How do you, how do you get people to, to use it, embrace some of the ideas that it represents? I think it's interesting because, you know, we deliver an advanced diploma in neuroscience and leadership and I've been doing that for, for quite a number of years now. And from the very beginning when you start sharing concepts about how the brain drives behaviour, so we all have needs for certainty, we have needs for autonomy, we have needs for belonging and relating to people, we have needs for feeling like we're being treated fairly. And we also have needs to feel that we are significant. So we, we share our cares or scare model with people to help people under, understand that those needs fundamentally drive how we behave in the workplace. Work is a social context. And if those social needs aren't met, then we feel unsafe. And so it links back to the concept of psychological safety. We know that that's, you know, people are talking a lot more about that concept. Um, I've been talking about it for years, so I'm very pleased to see it's getting some <laughs> attention because when people, and so I link it back to the concept of feeling safe or not safe because really the fundamental job of your brain is to keep you alive and it does that by unconsciously taking in information through our senses 
and linking that with past experience and basically making a snap judgment, am I safe in this social context or am I not safe? And when we're not safe, obviously that activates the fight, flight and freeze response. I'm dying to ask you more about psychological safety, but Paul. (laughs) So I just wanted to just expand on that a little bit on the psychological safety because I do see it is a, a connected theme in a lot of the offerings that you have. Chris and I... Our, our main area of interest is around creativity mm-hmm. and we know that ideas are scary and we know that from the work that we do that a lot of people, you know, don't feel safe promoting new ideas and whilst businesses say they want to be creative, they're not. So I'm just interested in, you know, very specifically around that idea of psychological safety and, and generating ideas or expressing ideas in companies and your sort of experience will take on that. Psychological safety was kind of really brought to our attention by the work of Amy Edmondson, but it's been around for, you know, decades. People have talked about it for decades. I think the interesting thing is that when people don't feel psychologically safe, they don't feel safe to speak up and speak out. They don't feel safe to offer alternative opinions because they they fear that they will be shut down or or judged. And so, that's that's really a creativity killer when you don't feel psychologically safe. Then you're not going to um, challenge people and you're just going to go along with the norm. You're going to stay under the radar to keep yourself safe and that that is a biological drive. We want to feel safe. So we're not going to expose ourselves to any risk if we don't feel safe. And, yeah, we, we hear companies saying we want to be innovative and creative and that's just not going to happen unless your people fundamentally feel psychologically safe. And the interesting thing about psychological safety is it's a, it's a lead indicator. So it influences engagement, it influences motivation, it influences creativity, innovation, but it also influences physical safety in the workplace as well. And ultimately it's what influences culture and business results. And yet we see many organisations go down the wrong path, I think. They start with, let's change culture. We, culture is an outcome. It's, it's a lag indicator of, of how people are treated within an organisation and how we know leaders influence the psychological safety of their people by as much as 75%. So leaders have a, you know, a really significant role to play in, in supporting people to feel psychologically safe. But if you think about how leaders are promoted, it's often because they're technically good at their job so, and they get promoted into a leadership position and then no one gives them any training in how to lead people. And, you know, my belief is most leaders are trying to do a good job but we set them up for failure because we, we go, okay, you're great at your job, now here's a bunch of people for you to lead. <laughs> and, you know, some people do it well and other people don't do it well. And and typically, I suppose this is an old school way of looking at business, but you get to the top by being aggressive, dominant, testosterone filled, combative. And we're seeing politicians around the world getting to the top with exactly those tools. So how do you I, it's, I was I was reading about the flight or fright or flight response, which is very instinctive. We all know what that's like. And I can remember recently having an argument, somebody suggested something that I disagreed with. And I instantly went, I'm going to prove you wrong. We had a good old argument. That's instinctive. That's natural. Now, you're, you're promoting something which to me doesn't seem instinctive. And in a way, hasn't 
wouldn't reward you if you started becoming open to new ideas, understanding, accepting, all those nice sounding things. But are they that practical? I, I, I guess my question is, it, it doesn't feel natural, doesn't feel instinctive. Logically, it makes perfect sense. Is there a, is there a sort of, why is it a good idea, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm. I think what you've just described is a, a natural biological need, to, the fight to be right. <laughs> And um, and that links with our need for significance because we we believe you know we're we're worth something we're worthwhile and we want other people to hold us in positive you know with positive regard. So I think it's only when people actually understand that when you continue to act in that way that it actually doesn't end up supporting your goals if you like so so yeah at times it means we do have to create new pathways in our brain to come from a place of curiosity and if you think about and people listening to this if you think about the people that have been the best leaders were they the ones that always tried to be right were they the ones that didn't ask for your opinion we all know great leaders are the ones that are humble and they They'll admit their mistakes, they will be genuinely curious and they will care about us. And so, yeah, they do, you know, they can get to the top. And I think a really good example was the mind. So he was in the news where he said, I wish I hadn't bullied people along the way. I would have got the same results not acting that way. A New South Wales minister, I forget his name, has just resigned for, for exactly that. You know, I've perhaps been too much of a bully, yeah. Yeah, but what's interesting is, you know, the, that concept that I would have got the same results, I actually think that that's completely wrong because we know that people perform at their best when they are supported. And if you, you know, from a business perspective, if you look at the turnover rate of companies where they have autocratic dictatorial leaders, it's very high. When you start crunching the numbers of you know, replacing senior executives, it starts to become incredibly costly. So if you if you think about, well, maybe there is a different way to lead and I think that younger people coming into the workforce are not putting up with this style of leadership. They're voting with their feet and particularly now where we have a talent, you know, challenge, retaining talent, attracting talent, then we need to be thinking about how are we looking after our people, how are we creating a space that people feel able to be there, you know, bring the best version of themselves to work. Linda, I had a question regarding you, you, you run this advanced diploma in Euro leadership. What, what, what's the change that you see in the, in the people and the leaders that come in from, you know, when they start? Um, uh, I suppose what's, what's the first thing, what's their observation, what's their insight to the fact that they need to do this? And, and, you know, how are they different when they come out of out of your diploma course? I think that's probably one of the most satisfying things for me personally is hearing, you know, the very last study call we have with our students, they say, this has changed my life. And it's changed my life in my work sphere, but also in my personal sphere. So when we start to understand how we can positively influence every social situation we find ourselves in, people start practically applying what they're learning and then they see the benefits of that. And as you see the benefits, then you continue to do more of that. And so the interesting thing is that they've seen 
changes in a whole bunch of spheres from being able to regulate, self-regulate better, so to manage our our emotions and our feelings through to being able to focus our attention much better. And we know that if we if we can't focus our attention and be the boss of our attention, then it's very difficult to be innovative or creative in the workplace. So they, they talk a lot about improvements in innovation and creativity and problem solving, uh, managing change. We know that so many change efforts fail and they really take a different perspective on how do we approach change from from the beginning and how do we support change to work well within an organisation. And I, I think the other thing is that people notice they're able to collaborate better with others. So there's there's a whole range of very practical tools that people apply and they see the benefits straight away so they keep doing it. <laughs> and and it's, it's lovely. Um, you know, we've even had stories of, of people talking about how it's improved their relationship with their with their children, with their partners, and you know that was never the intention when I when I developed this course, but it, it is very humbling to see that people they see the benefits and then they want to take this message. And really, my mission is to change the world one brain at a time. And I now have this group of people that are on the same mission, and I, I think that's wonderful. You're changing it two at the time here, just with you, with Chris and I, <laughs> but hopefully with our audience, it's uh, one to many. Sorry, Chris. You, uh, I, I like to feel my, my. I'm already on board. My brain doesn't need changing in this. I'm so, I'm so excited by this this concept. I'm a question on behalf of people listening, and, and they might be thinking, I can almost pronounce new, new, whatever it is, and it sounds like it's powerful. I can be more creative, better relationships with people around me. I can manage to give us one tip. If you want to say, give me, I want to try this out as a kind of complete amateur. What one, how could you just start down this path of psychological safety? What, what could somebody do? I, I think it's actually, the, the key is to, understand your own brain first and understand how, notice how it's driving your behaviour. So notice when you start to feel that fight, flee or freeze response and kind of be, get curious about it. So I think what I say to people is the most important thing is to be the scientist of your own experience and really ad- adopt a curious mindset about, wow, gee, I just noticed I've really my heart started to race in this situation and I feel really uncomfortable. I wonder what led to that. And, you know, is that real or is it imagined? Is it based on a past experience? You know, you you get a new boss and they remind you of a boss that you really didn't like and treated you terribly and you start to assume and predict that they're going to behave like that because we know that the... The brain is a prediction organ. It's trying to predict what's going to happen next to guide your action to stay safe. So I think it's really being curious and noticing, oh, wow, I'm getting into that pattern of the fight to be right. Maybe I need to stop doing that for a moment and just listen. I know Paul wants to ask a question, but I, I'm just going to tell you, you sound a lot like a photography. I'm a, when I'm not doing this, I'm a photographer. And his advice to me was exactly what he, notice what you notice. If you're trying to capture a picture, you've got to notice what it is that you're trying to say with that image and think hard about whether what you're doing with the camera captures what you've noticed. Love it. Love it. Paul, I know you were just done jumping with the question. I love that idea of scientists of your own mind. 
And I've added a, a fourth F uh, to the flight, fight or freeze, and that's the figure it out. And I, and I see it as a, in the, a negative aspect because, you know, in creativity, to be curious, you need to stay in that area of anxiety longer because, you know, it's an uncertain thing. And if you jump to a quick conclusion by, you know, using the prefrontal cortex to, to you know, snap a decision so you can get rid of the anxiety and move on, it most often won't be a creative outcome or creative solution. So I think we have this just tendency to want to figure stuff out quickly because it makes us feel safer. Hmm but doesn't necessarily give us the most creative outcome because, you know, it, it gets rid of that idea of curiosity of keeping on searching and looking. Do you have a thought about that at all? Yeah, and I think, again, you know, this comes to the brain is a cons- uh, energy-conserving organ. It wants to save resources so that you can deal with that saber-toothed tiger that leaps in front of you. So, you know, when you think about how the brain operates moment by moment, we're trying to conserve energy. So... That's why when in a creative process and we're trying, we move to solutions probably a little bit too early rather than staying, you know, and actually realising the place of discomfort is okay and it's, it's about getting curious about, yeah, why, why do I feel like that and what's making me feel uncomfortable about this? But I think there's, it's also important the brain can get stuck in what I call problematizing. So we get stuck in the problem because that's known and familiar. And we, you know, we can talk about the problem until the cows come home, but there's a point at which we have to actually go, okay, we're pretty clear about the problem now. Let's start exploring some ideas here and let's make sure that all ideas from every person around this table are able to be considered and and brought forth and we know that extroverts think out loud and so they'll go blah 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 introverts tend to move more within themselves and so we also need to be able to in a creative process ensure that we're getting everybody's voice in that process and and um, often the extroverts are the loudest and they're the ones that get the ideas tabled and we sometimes miss those quieter people that have great ideas but take a little bit longer to process and, and think about it before they'll offer up something. I've, I've got a great story about that, if I could share that briefly. Yes, please. One of our um, students was a, uh, a CEO of a, a company and she was a, an extreme extrovert, but her team were all introverts. And so she would go, blah, 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 and they would go, okay. And then she'd go, oh, no, hang on, blah, 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 blah. And they'd go, oh, okay, is that what we're doing? Oh, hang on a sec. And she realised that that she was confusing them. And so what she decided to do was to say to them, okay, I'm speaking in draft. So um, so they knew that she – and I, I thought that was beautiful. So, so they would put their pens down and let her kind of think out loud and then work with her on that. And I thought that was really lovely. <laughs> I think my life is defined by speaking in draft. I'm still waiting for the moment where I work it out. <laughs> I, I, I've had that when I was when I was a leader of a large architectural company. I, I didn't actually come to that conclusion, and I just was very impetuous and had these great ideas, and they were just ideas for me. But next we're going to come back, and they'd be actioning those ideas. But I'm going, what idea? I'm on to the next idea. What you know? That's right. So. Um, so I love that. I, I, uh, I'm going to speak in draft more often. I need to explain that to my wife as well because 
Do you think that's, you know, like it's, yes, this is what we're going to do? I go, no, no, this is just an idea. Well, maybe you and I should ditch the pens we use to signal to each other for pencils to show you can rub it out if you want. Well, this, is, this is a pencil, Chris, this one. All right, so. well, I've now switched to a pencil as well. I'm now speaking in draft. Linda, is, I'm, I'm still interested in the challenge you must face in, in getting people on board with this, because it seems to me, and forgive me, that the world of neuroscience and psychological safety it does have a lot of threatening language and this sense of, well, it's all very well in theory, but I've got to get out there into the wide world because I've got to compete, I've got to be aggressive, I've got to be dominant. Is there a person out there that embodies or has successfully embraced psychological safety and a leader we can spot and go, ah, that is a great example of it in action? I think we spoke earlier about politicians and so, you know, we've talked about politicians that have used bullying as a a very inappropriate way of leading people and, you know, it's been career-ending for some of them, hasn't it? Yes, thank goodness. I think if I think about people that I admire that I think lead in a way that embodies psychological safety, Jacinta Ahern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, comes to mind. You know, if you think about how she... She's very humble, she's inclusive, and even thinking about, I think she uses what I would call a benefit mindset, which is extends upon growth mindset, where we're looking at how can I lead in a way that really is of benefit to the greater good of, of her country and the world. So I think it's people that are humble, they're curious, and, you know, she also, she's real, like she feels real and she's very, she shows her vulnerability and, you know, there's there's less political speak, you know, when you hear her talking. So I think one of the things that people misunderstand about psychological safety, it's not about being nice. And I think people think, oh, if I do psychological safety, I have to be nice to everyone. And that's not the case. When we have psychologically safe environments, we're holding people to account as well. So you can have psychological safety and and have high levels of psychological safety, but people aren't performing because they're spending all of their time hanging out together and, you know, having long lunches and having, because they love being together, but they're not necessarily being held to account to perform and do what they're supposed to do. Linda, as we discussed earlier, you know, Chris and I are on this mission to lift the veil on creativity in business using the, the lenses of ideas, stories and illustration. Do you have a, a, an illustration or an image that you could share with us that sort of encapsulates you know, either your, your story or your idea around uh, neuro capability or neuro leadership? It's really hard to pick one image, um, Paul. So, I mean, that's it's a it's a great question. I think when I think what what would I see if I was standing on a balcony in an organisation, I would see people very intentionally directing their attention. So, one of the things that you know, if you think about a story, my a story of creativity for me, I was invited to do some workshops in. Bangkok in Thailand and this is quite a number of years ago and the person that was bringing me over said I don't want you to use the word mindfulness and I went oh okay and he said because you know it has some spiritual connotations and I thought oh because I was talking you know because I think mindfulness is very important in being able to support creativity for example and so I was on the plane and I was thinking gosh what can I use is there another term and it dawned on me that 
really what I was talking about was another intelligence. And so if we talk about social intelligence, emotional intelligence, I believe there's a third intelligence that is absolutely critical for every person to be able to perform at their best, and I call it attentional intelligence. So it's to be able to focus our attention in a deliberate way that is aligned with our goals. And so I drew this picture on a, I think it was on the back of my airline ticket because I'd left my notepad in my suitcase of what attentional intelligence might look like. So, I, yeah, so I, I guess one of the things that I, I came up with is the three key ingredients for great leaders and, and, and for everyone. So it doesn't, you don't have to be a leader. Everyone leads something in an organisation. You know, there's formal leaders, but we lead processes, we lead creative moments, we lead change. And so it's really that we have attentional intelligence, so we are knowing where our attention is and determining whether that's aligned with our goals and, and what we should be paying attention to, that we're enacting our emotional intelligence, so we're tapping into, you know, how am I feeling right now in this in this moment And we're also enacting our social intelligence. So we're understanding how is my behaviour positively or negatively impacting on on the people that are around me. So I think it's, it's those three things, but it really comes back to psychological safety. And I've developed a model that we call um, brain-friendly high-performing organisations. And at the core is, is psychological safety. And then we look at basically where our attention is. So it's about attention. And then from that, it's about intentionally collaborating. So how are we collaborating with others? And in the outer part of that circle is fostering resilience. But if we don't have the psychological safety in place, then we can't intentionally collaborate. And really, if you think about innovation and creativity, it comes through an exchange of ideas in a safe place with other people. So if if we don't have that in place, then, you know, we're, we're not going to be innovative or creative. You mentioned you first sketched this this model on the back of a plane ticket. I, I would does that still exist? Because I love the idea of a creating something when you're up in the air, you're looking out over the clouds. The brain's quite right, but also the kind of spontaneity of using the back of a plane ticket. Does that still exist? Uh, yeah, I think I've got it in a box somewhere of archives. Because um, yeah, that was a really interesting moment, and I don't know about. You, but I loved planes. Planes are where I had some of my best ideas. And if you think about it's because we're not interrupted. And I was talking a little bit about the, you know, the neuroscience of insight. In order to have good ideas, we actually have to have a quiet brain. And, and if you think about when you see someone on the verge of an insight, they'll often look up. And that's to decrease the amount of information coming in through our sight. And yet often what we do when we see someone on the verge of an insight is we want to share our idea. And so you actually share your idea and they lose those really kind of fragile connections that are coming around that insight and that that new idea. So, Just on that point, I, I love in Alan the Boatons, The Art of Travel, he talks about generating ideas in a plane because he said it's the reverse or the opposite of being grounded because you, you're not tied to any physical realm in terms of you know, any place. And so you're, you're between places, between spaces. So if you could have a look for that plane ticket, that would be a, a fantastic image for us to connect to our podcast. Linda, it has been an absolutely 
fabulous talking to you. We could literally talk all day. Chris and I will learn. Maybe if we need to learn more, we need to both sign up to the graduate diploma. But look, you are really certainly talking our language and it's fantastic that you're out there changing at least one brain at a time, if not, <laughs> if not more. Yeah, thank you so much, Linda. Attentional intelligence, that seems to be the thing we need to focus on. Really appreciate it. It's really kind of you to join us. Thank you very much for having me on the program. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, my goodness. What an amazing conversation. I'm going to have to listen to that many times, to all those wonderful different concepts. Attentional intelligence just being wonderful. Listen, if you're listening in, if you're excited about it as I am, please leave a review. Please tell your friends. It means a huge amount to us if you join the club, join our mission to lift bail on creativity. Yes, Chris, another great episode and I'm continuing to learn, which <laughs> I'm hoping our audience and our listeners are also learning stuff. But even if no one out there is listening, it's good for me. <laughs> we'll see you next week for the next episode in our season on neuroscience. On neurocreativity. That's easy for you to say. I knew what this is about. <laughs> neurocreativity, yes. <laughs> okay. Cheers. See you next week, Chris. See you next week.